You don't have any Stephen King. You've got the shoe. You mean shiny. Shh. You wanna get sued? It's just your fate. You're that geeky Stephen King kid. There's one of you in every school. Okay, that's him, that's him, that's Kujo, that's Kujo. I was thinking along the lines of no TV and no beer make Homer something, something. Oh, crazy. Don't mind if I do. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King, hosted by two lifelong constant readers. We do non-spoiler and spoiler reviews of King's published work and take a critical look at his film and television adaptations as well. We also discuss the latest King news and check in with each other on on our ongoing King obsessions. (laughs) It's the podcast where all things serve the King. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash tower junkies pod and follow us on twitter and every other level of social media at tower junkies pod and uh all these episodes will always be free but if you want to support us with your money you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for a ridiculous amount of bonus content spread across all of obsessiveviewer.com's various podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Hurt, and it's just me today. Um, uh, Tiny is uh, busy with life, and um, I am kind of doing this episode as an impromptu thing. It's This is kind of going to be kind of an experiment, and I'll explain in a bit what we're doing here, but... Basically, today, May 25th, 2022, Stephen King released a new short story um, that's exclusive to Scribd.com, and if you sign up at Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D, you can get access to it and a bunch of other, like, uh, podcasts and and books and stuff, Um, both uh, the ebook and audiobook version of the new story, which is called Finn, and it's about a 19-year-old um, Irish gentleman who is um, abducted suddenly by um, some uh, less than uh, desirable people, like um, some crimi- a, a, a pe- people of criminal um, minds, um, and he is held captive and it becomes apparent that it is a case of mistaken identity and he was not their intended target. And in, in Stephen King fashion, it gets a little weird and a little fun. Um, yeah. So what I'm going to do with this episode of tower junkies is since it's just me, I'm going to share my thoughts on Finn in both a non-spoiler and spoiler, um, discussion and or review it's not really a discussion if I'm just talking to into the ether but um it's just going to be me talking about the short story and kind of sharing my thoughts on it because I I listened to the audiobook today and I enjoyed it I, I enjoyed it we'll get into that in a bit but the other point or the other um reason I wanted to do this as a is as an episode so um, if you, if you are a longtime listener, you'll remember that last year, uh, I think it was last year, Stephen King released a short story called Red Screen that was on Humble Bundle, um, 
as kind of a a way to raise money and stuff for, I can't remember what charity it was, but um, it was a limited time. What I did with that was I read it and then I posted a, a, a free review of it on um, our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And what I did there was I, I, instead of putting that behind a paywall, I made that free. So that is, that is free on there, um, kind of as a way to kind of help promote the Patreon a little bit. And so what I'm doing with this one, since it's just a short story that's not collected anywhere or anything, it's a new short story, I'm going to share my thoughts in a non-spoiler and spoiler review. I was originally going to do this as a free Patreon thing, but I'm releasing it as a full episode because I'm going to add on a couple of previously Patreon-exclusive short story reviews because I've been doing the what I'm calling the Church of Kings. So on Patreon, I basically use Patreon as this blanket kind of experiment to put new content out and exclusive content out for Patreon that doesn't necessarily fit into like a full episode of one of our podcasts. And it's kind of a it's kind of an all-encompassing thing, so you get bonus content for Obsessive Viewer, for Anthology, whenever I do Anthology, and for Tower Junkies. And what I'm doing, what I've been concentrating on trying to do with with Tower Junkies is I've been doing what I'm calling the Church of King, which every now and then I will release a collection of recordings of me talking about short stories in Stephen King's collected works. So in January, I did a five-part series totaling about six hours of audio um, all about Night Shift. I went story by story, and I talked about Night Shift and shared my thoughts on each individual story. And then uh, I took a little bit of a sabbatical because a lot of stuff happened. I moved all that stuff. Um, And now I'm back at it doing Skeleton Crew, and, um, I have about two hours, I think, of audio and, and I have, uh, probably a couple other, a couple other hours that I'm going to, going to do, uh, to close out Skeleton Crew. And then I'm going to move on to, um, I think everything's eventual and then eventually just after sunset. So what I'm going to do with this episode is I'm going to share my thoughts on Finn and then I'm going to post or I'm going to I'm going to kind of pad this episode out with a sample of our Patreon. So you're going to hear my thoughts on Finn and then after that you'll hear my thoughts from January or I think it was September that I uh recorded it but my thoughts on the short story from Night Shift um I know what you need and then after that you'll hear my thoughts on the raft from Skeleton Crew that I recorded last week I think. So that's going to be kind of the layout for this episode, and my hope is that, you know, it will um, maybe, you know, get people to want to subscribe to the Patreon and everything. (laughs) Um, uh, That's my hope, because peek behind the curtain, I really love doing this, and I really love doing Patreon stuff, and also, I'm I'm hoping to... to, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, there's, there's a new, okay. So there's a new mixer out from road and I'm really excited to, to get that, but I want to, I don't have like, I'm, I want to do that with Patreon funds. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, the content that's on Patreon, in addition to the Stephen King stuff, is I'm doing episode reviews of the Disney plus Marvel shows. So I did, I did Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I did, um, I believe I did WandaVision and Loki, I definitely did, and then I'm currently doing Hawkeye, the next I'm going to do Moon Knight, then Miss Marvel, then She-Hulk, 
And, uh, and then I also did the Hulu um, limited series Candy recently. And yeah, so that's at the $2 level. So if you want access to my TV and book reaction recordings and immediate re- reactions to movies I see in theaters or recent releases, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and pledge $2 per month. Now, if you do that right now, you will immediately get charged the $2 and then at the beginning of the month, you'll be charged for the next month. So if you want to wait until June 1st to do it, go ahead and do it. Uh, once you do that, you get instant access to everything. Now, uh, I also did a an extensive part-by-part review of The Green Mile, the serial novel. So each part, I recorded um, my thoughts on each part as I was reading it. So I did that. And then I also, of course, did Billy Summers in about five parts as I was reading it. So there's a lot of content on there. So I'm I'm just saying like, hey, if you have the funds and you want more content from us, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and pledge at least $2 a month. And then if you pledge $5 a month, you get access to all of that plus uh, movie commentary tracks, which I've done. I mean, I've done Dr. Sleep. I've done The Shining, I think. And I've done, um, I'm going to do The Green Mile soon enough and The Mist and a bunch of other stuff I have on there. So check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. That's my pitch for it. You'll hear content that is, that is exclusive to Patreon later in this episode. But before I get into my thoughts on Finn, I do want to also mention that our very own Tiny was a guest on the delightful and fantastic Year of Underrated Stephen King podcast. Uh, Kim C. interviewed him, and he had some really fantastic, um, really fantastic input about uh, about his history with Stephen King. That some stuff you may not uh, may not have heard on the podcast. So uh, check that out. The Year of Underrated Stephen King. We love that podcast. We're going to have Kim C. on very soon uh, to talk about a couple other short stories from Skeleton Crew, and then we also have. Uh, in the pipeline, or down the pike, or down the pipe, I don't know. Um, we have uh, plans to do hard case crime reviews with her, so look forward to that um, down the road and everything, but I'm very excited to have her on the show in the coming weeks, but in the interim, check out her show, The Year of Underrated Stephen King. In particular, check out her delightful chat with Tiny, and uh, and yeah, so, okay, We are in this episode, guys, so let me go ahead and tarry no further, and let me go ahead and go into my thoughts on Finn, the new short story from Stephen King that was published today on Scribd.com, which you can get access to. Um, I think if you go to StephenKing.com, there's a link that you can get a 60-day free trial of Scribd.com. If you just go to Scribd.com, you can get a 14-day trial, but uh, once you you sign up for the trial, you can cancel any time and you get access to all the stuff on there, but also you get access to Finn, both the ebook and the audiobook. So um, go ahead and do that. And uh, yeah, so like I said, I'm going to do non-spoiler and a spoiler review for Finn. So let me go through my notes and let's talk non-spoilers about Finn. Okay, so in the audiobook form, I only I only listened to the audiobook. I didn't read the ebook, but I don't know how many pages it technically is, but 
The audiobook runs about 54 to 55 minutes total, and the interesting thing about it is that it's narrated by Kellen Boyle, I think is the name, and he is a phenomenal narrator. He's uh, Irish, so that, that Irish accent is really kind of immersive with it, because this is an interesting story in that it takes place in Ireland. It's it's about this Irish kid who is who is taken hostage um, um in a case of mistaken identity, kind of it, it, reminiscent to me, like a little, like very, very slightly to like mistaken identity stuff, like um, North by Northwest, I think uh, is what I was thinking of. But more so, it's just really unique because it's not, it's not Stephen King's like, uh, I don't know, his, his, you know, comfort level, or it's not his, um, it's not his bread and butter of like Maine or, you know, Americana or anything. It's Ireland. And it, in that respect, it kind of reminds me of the short story. Um, is it, I think it's Crouch and from, I think just after sunset. Um, and also I think the doctor's case as well. Um, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit, just kind of like a, not necessarily globe hopping, but somewhere that's completely different from what we nor a location that we're, um, that we're not used to seeing from King's fiction. So, um, I think the narrator did a phenomenal job and I really, I, I, like, I enjoyed the, the I enjoyed the, the story. It is, I will say that as a running total, it is the 110th, um, piece of short fiction that I've read from Stephen King. So that includes short stories and novellas. Um, it's not going to break my top 19 short fiction list, but it's a pretty good little fun, uh, fun story, and mostly because it's about it's or it's from the perspective of this nineteen-year-old kid. His name is Finn Murray, and he uh, it's 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 got this like nice, healthy dose of comedy in it for this kind of very serious and dramatic situation that he finds himself in. But it's it's kind of bathed in this comedy tone that I really appreciate in in this story specifically because. He is this kid who, <laughs> he, he's basically had a run of bad luck his entire life. Like, he lost a toe in a fire firework accident. Uh, he was dropped as a baby. He was nearly or definitely struck by lightning and then hit his head and was in, was unconscious uh, for a couple of days. Like, he just has a run of bad luck. And there's a, there's a recurring piece of, like, a recurring, um, uh, I don't know, the, this recurring thing that his grandmother, I think, had said to him throughout his life, or his aunt had said throughout his life, that um, was, what was it? It was, um, for every piece of bad luck, um, it's something to the effect of, uh, for every stroke of bad luck, there's two, there's two strokes of good luck, and um, and Finn has never really had any good luck or anything. Um, so he finds himself after a night of, um, how to put it delicately after a night of amorous activity that left him unfulfilled, um, with his girlfriend, uh, as he, as he says it in the, uh, in the narration, he says that he was, he was so, um, he was so jazzed by the the physical the physical um, aspect of his time with his girlfriend that he had to run off the blue balls basically, and so uh, while in the heat of running through uh, the city or running through the town, he bumps into a man and kind of stumbles 
and then picks himself up. And then in that moment, he is a van comes screeching to a halt, puts it, puts a bag over his head. The people in the, in the van did and then transport him to a secluded location. And that's where we get what is traditionally Stephen King's like eerie, eerie, um, dramatic, tense atmosphere. And there is that in this story, but it is bathed in that comedic light. And I think that it's mostly because we are in Finn's perspective. We don't have any context for why he was abducted. We don't have any context for what they abducted him for. It's kind of intimated or it's kind of implied at the beginning that maybe they're just like gangsters and they and they just wanted to like they they were picking up a rival gang member or or what have you. That was my assumption. And then as it gets more as it progresses, we learn that there's maybe not maybe not enough or maybe there's not much <laughs> there's there's how to phrase it without really going into spoilers that um that that really the people that have kept him that have abducted him are maybe not uh maybe have like a screw loose are are maybe psychopaths and maybe insane and that brings this level of tension and intrigue to the story because it's still bathed in that comedic energy but it's still kind of tense because it's this it it shows that like the main the main captor the guy that's kind of the the head of the show that's that's running things um from his uh, uh abductors is this guy named Ludlum which i have to assume is a reference to Robert Ludlum who wrote the born uh uh espionage espionage novels but it's it's got to be i'm sure it is um but it uh but he is it it's kind of slowly unfurled or revealed to us that he's maybe not all all there mentally and like there's a moment where when that becomes apparent i won't give away what that is maybe i'll talk about that in spoilers but um there's a moment where he is handed something where finn is handed something and then put back in his little cell or where he's being kept and everything where he's looking at it and he's realizing like oh oh these are psychopaths like this isn't this is weird this is not this is not what it seems this is a very intriguing situation that i found myself in a very precarious situation and it's another run of bad luck for finn and another element to that is that he's trying he there's a there's a level of um like a comedy of errors in the way that he is trying to explain to them that he's not the person that they're looking for. They're looking for someone named Bobby, um, Bobby something, Bobby Feeney. And he, but he is, um, (laughs) he's Finn Murray. And there's a comedy of errors that plays out when he's trying to explain like who he is and and explaining that he's not who they think he is and everything, but he can't really prove it. And in classic Stephen King fashion, he puts, he puts these obstacles in Finn's way in a, in a kind of believable way. Like it goes to the point where it's like, okay, well, do you have an ID on you? And then he's like, well, oh shit, no, I left my ID with my girlfriend. And like, he, he does this. And then when he does have a way to, to show that he um, is, is not who they think he is, it blows up in his face in a pretty comedic way, in a pretty interesting way. And it's a, it's another good example of Stephen King just kind of having fun with his writing and having fun with his storytelling because he's leaving these like little breadcrumbs in Finn's kind of pleas to the 
to the captors saying like, oh, you know, my name is actually Finn Murray. And then he repeats that a few times with a little extra uh, emphasis and, and a little more specificity. And we get his narration and his inner monologue saying like, okay, well, I'm being very specific, so they have to believe me. And then when they're in a position to actually know the truth and to find out the truth, it blows up in his face because of that specificity. And I just, I love that, again, that comedy of errors and everything, while also while also playing with this very kind of low-grade tension and um, uh, thriller aspect and, and kind of terrifying uh, premise of this man being being held captive by people who think that he's someone else. And then when you learn more, we don't, we don't, and that's the thing, we don't really learn a lot because they are kind of working under a different... Uh, different scope than a different scope of reality. Not that it's anything supernatural or, or anything. It's just a very, a very heavily deranged thought process that goes into this. And it's something that Finn can't really work against or work, work out himself because it is just so, um, so out there. He's at a disadvantage because his captors are, at least Ludlum is losing his mind a little bit. And I just found that to be a really interesting kind of uh, kind of uh, wrinkle to to the story, and it go it goes on to uh, lead to like his interactions with Ludlum are pretty interesting, and there there are varying degrees of intimidation employed. And I won't give away in this non spoiler section what happens kind of toward the end of the story, but overall, it's a really entertaining little uh, little short story. It's a nice thriller that. Um, has this, has this nice kind of, um, cozy tone to it, mostly because we have this central character. We have this, we have this character named Finn who is, he is at the mercy of these captors, but we are through his perspective and we are knowing, or we are seeing really only like only the details that he's seeing and not having the full details it brings us into this deranged kind of very confused and strange um thought process that the captors have toward him and it's this it's this kind of balancing actor it's this it's this dance of like where did you where do you have this information and it's like every time they ask for ask for something new from him or for more detail or intelligence from him it's completely it's something completely out of left field but you can kind of tell that the internal logic of that like there is a there is a certain logic that can be followed um, through their perspective, but we're seeing it through the prism of Finn's perspective. So we're just getting these little scant details here and there. And then as we, you know, figure out like, okay, well, there's, there's insanity at play here. So it's, it's probably nothing really. And it's just interesting to think about how, how Finn can kind of work through the situation and, and get to, freedom if he does get to freedom it's it's just it's really it's really interesting and um the story ends in a way that i really love i love when king does this kind of thing and this is a kind of toying thing with the uh with his writing and i won't give it away or anything until i go into spoilers but i just i really enjoyed uh the ending of the story because i thought that it was very very charming in a weird way very charming and uh satisfying for me but um yeah so i'll give my overall thoughts on finn and then i'll go into spoilers and everything so 
really, I thought this was a fun story. I think I liked it more than Red, Sc- Red Screen from last year on the Humble Bundle um, uh, thing. And I, I thought, I thought this was a lot of fun. I, I think that the, there's a, a certain derangement that isn't, isn't really as, um, as threatening as King's other work. Like it's a, it's a pretty, there, there's some violence in it. There's some kind of, there's a little bit of brutality. I mean, there's torture in the story, but I think that just kind of that whole like the subject matter is softened by Finn being a relatable and likable personality in a weird way um and because we know all of these like little details about him like he is kind of cursed for cursed uh he he carries the curse of bad luck and again it's nothing supernatural it's nothing it's nothing out there or crazy it's just it's just his lot in life, and I kind of really like that, this this grounded, like, realism um, in the face of kind of a just mentally deranged captor. Um, I just find that to be an interesting kind of balancing act. So, it was a really fun story, and I'll go into spoilers here in a moment, but um, I recommend checking it out. Um, go to scribd.com, sign up for the free trial, check out the audiobook or the ebook, and uh, yeah, and I'm curious when... I'm curious when Stephen King will release another short story collection, because I feel like this, uh, we have this red screen, and there was one other short story that was released, I think, in early 2020. Um, I can't, I don't remember it. I don't know if I really read that one, but, um, so he has, I mean, he has short stories that can be collected, um, so I'm curious when we'll get another short story collection. My guess would be probably next year, um, since uh, this year is you know fairy tale is coming out in September. So and that's I'm I'm very excited for that. So okay, well, if you don't want to be spoiled on Finn, feel free to check the show notes for timestamps to get to the Patreon exclusive, um, previously Patreon exclusive recordings of I Know What You Need and um, the raft. And those, I believe are non-spoiler reviews. If I do spoil, um, those stories, I do believe I say whether or not I do. So, um, so yeah. So if you want to skip over the spoilers for Finn, check the show notes. If not, or if you want to hear my spoilers on Finn, continue listening. So I'm going to play some music. And when I come back, I'm going to spoil Finn. Alright, so spoilers on for Finn, which once again you can find on Scribd.com if you have the free trial. You get access to the ebook and the audiobook version of it. I do recommend checking out the audiobook because uh, narrator Kellen Boyle, I believe is the name, uh, does a phenomenal job. And it's a really cool, immersive um, uh, narration in the audiobook. So, a couple of things I want to touch on is uh, in spoilers is, first and foremost, the what what Ludlum and his group think Finn has um it's clear that they are th- they think that they are this espionage like 
um, spy syndicate that's working to save the world and everything. So at first, I love the escalation of what they're asking him for. Like they ask him where the briefcase is with the papers. And then I think when when they go out to um, when they go out to another room or what have you, um, when they go out to the, to another room, they, I think he sees a briefcase with like papers that are empty maybe, or maybe I'm just imagining that. I don't remember. But anyway, he obviously doesn't know anything about the briefcase or anything about the papers. And then we get, I love the escalation of that. We get the, um, more detail as weird and out there and out of left field it is, but it has this, it follows this internal logic. So we get, um, the fact that they're looking for a briefcase with papers, and then we get the detail that they're looking for the blueprints for the bomb factory. Um, I think that's what it was called. Um, uh, yeah, the, the bomb factory and then the translation and like, um, all we need to know is where you put the translation and then also the key for the translation. Like these little details are enough detail is enough detail to give us a, a, a kind of the the blueprint of an outline of what they're looking for, what their what their objective is, but also it's it's also just enough detail to uh, feel like, oh yeah, he's insane. Ludlum is insane. He has lost, he has lost his marbles. He is operating under a completely different set of rules or a completely imaginative reality. So the, there, there are no blueprints. There is no bomb factory. There is no translation or anything. So literally there is no way that Finn can fib his way out of it. There's no way that Finn can give them the information they seek because, the information that Ludlum is seeking does not exist and is not a part of reality, which I find really, really interesting in the fact that it j just makes that tension a little bit more tense because it's just, it is, it brings to light this idea, like this disturbing nature, um, that like the derangement of Ludlum that I think is really interesting. And the <laughs> pamphlet, like, that is the first indication that we get that Ludlum is insane. Um, he hands, he gives him a pamphlet that's basically Ludlum's like version of the Geneva Convention. It's um, world approved techniques for advanced interrogation. And every like, there's a lot of examples that are said like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay threatening animals not okay and like anything else that's not mentioned here is probably okay like the the comedy of the derangement of ludlum through the through the prism of finn reading the pamphlet is just very very entertaining it's entertaining in in disturbing in a lower grade than what's kind of normally disturbing from stephen king and I don't, I don't want to say it's lighthearted, but it is, it is enjoyable. It is entertaining. It's very entertaining. So I really like that. And then it gets more and more kind of intimidating when Ludlum, when Finn notices like Ludlum has like dried blood on his knuckles or on his hands. And that kind of gives this intimidation factor as well. And also the delirium or disorientation of playing loud music and, um, and just really disorienting um, uh, Finn and everything. And finally, it gets to the point where Ludlum offers him breakfast. And this I found really interesting because uh, 
First of all, Ludlum's mood is just completely like off kilter. It goes completely into derangement, full on derangement. He is, he is kind of, it kind of has this feeling of, of, um, a maniac cackling with glee at something that's, that's unsettling or something, not something that on the surface is unsettling, but it's, it's like he's cackling at something that is an inside joke that, the reader and everyone else isn't privy to. And I really like that because later Doc reveals that the, that the breakfast that is being offered to Finn is poisoned. And I really like that because, because of the ambiguity of the ending, which I'll get to in a bit, but I just, I found that really kind of appetizing and really interesting as well. Um, in addition to that, the, um, the way that Ludlum, kind of gives him the choice of getting breakfast like he he quizzes him he gives him a trivia thing where um he tells him that he can have breakfast if he can name three elvis songs that is completely random and and absolutely insane and i kind of realized while i was listening to the audiobook for the first time i kind of realized like uh, gun to my head breakfast in breakfast in my face poison breakfast in my face i I, I'm shocked to say that, and a little embarrassed to say, I would not have been able to name three Elvis songs by their title. Um, that's, and that's weird to me. Like, I'm not really a musically minded person. I like, I like what I like, but, and everything, I don't really, uh, seek out music, but like, I just realized like someone as ubiquitous and, and famous as Elvis, I can't name the titles of like three of his songs. So I would not have gotten, uh, my breakfast, but, uh, but yeah, and I kind of thought, so after after the three songs thing, um, Ludlum asks him if he knows more, what he knows about Elvis as a person. And he gives this piece of trivia that um, is unsubstantiated. I don't know if this is true or not, but the... the um, the the detail that Elvis was a twin, but he um, absorbed the twin in utero, and like he, the story in the story they refer to it as fetal cannibalism, which I think would be an amazing like punk rock band name, um, <laughs> fetal cannibalism. It probably already is, but I don't know. But anyway, um, that. When it gets to that point, I kind of thought that it was going to go into a direction of, like, Jordan Peele's Us, like, doppelgangers, and um, there's that Twilight Zone episode that I can't remember the name of, I'm so sorry to the memory and the state of Rod Serling, but um, there's um, Mirror Image, Mirror Image, Um yeah, so I thought it was going to go that route, and I was surprised that it doesn't go that route, but it does go a route that um, I was entertained by, Um because he is taken away, uh, before he can get his breakfast, he is pulled out and Doc and a couple of the other guys, um, facilitate his escape, Finn's escape. And that I thought was really thrilling and, and entertaining and everything. Um, because, um, because of the reveal that the mushrooms were poisoned and, in the fact that like we get those breadcrumbs we get those we get that kind of narrative structure where we like Ludlum says to Finn directly he says hey um you know two of my men have already left and everything um have already left him so this is a sinking ship and everything so 
so yeah, we don't we don't really need you anymore. And kind of double double speak saying like we're gonna kill you. And then so Doc and the other guy facilitate uh, Finn's escape. And I really like how the story kind of switches over to a it's not a supernatural thing. It is an ambiguity thing. And I really like how open-ended it is and open to interpretation it is because we have Doc explaining to Finn that like, oh yeah, you know, and, and we've been, we've been working with, um, with Ludlum for a while and he's completely lost it. Um, he thinks only two people have left, but the entire crew has left him and we are too. And you, he says, you don't deserve to die because he's the way he is now. And I found that interesting because there's a piece of information that we get from the other guy, not doc, but the other guy, I don't remember the name where he says that, yeah, we, we, uh, we did good work. We did good work. We saved the world in 2017 and only about a dozen people even know about it, which I, that feels kind of like a, a reference to maybe another Stephen King story, but I can't think of what he came out with in 2017. And I don't, I don't think there's a connection there, but correct me if I'm wrong. There, it could absolutely be, um, something that, um, I'm completely overlooking, but um, as the story kind of reaches its conclusion, uh, Finn is let free. He's set free. He's given $4,000, uh, or 4,000 euros. And then he is walking home and he decides to go to the park that he, um, that his, that he's, he, that is talked about at the beginning of the story where he, the park where he broke his arm and, but, but had, plenty of positive memories of playing in, uh, when he was a child. And this is where we get this really interesting, just character motivated ambiguity kind of exercise in ambiguity. It's where Finn is trying to figure out, like, this is, the, <laughs> this is what I find really appealing about the story. This man, who is just a victim of bad luck throughout his entire life, has now been given the good fortune of not being poisoned to death in a case of mistaken identity from a deranged lunatic who has kidnapped him under the false pretense that he has uh, that he has information that will save lives or that will stop a bomb manufacturer or something like that. And he has gotten out of that scot-free with $4,000 in his pocket, and he is going back home. Faced with that bit of incredible good fortune, he immediately thinks like, oh, well, when I was a kid, we read An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, and that whole story is about um, a man who is hanged, and then the the twig snaps, and he he gets to freedom, um, and he escapes, but it turns out that it's all in his head and that he actually died. And that was like the moment that he died, his brain made him think that he was free and escaped and everything. What if that's happening to me? <laughs> and I love that as a bit of levity in the ambiguity, because this is a character who has been down on his luck his entire life. And he has been told his entire life that, oh, you know, every, every piece of bad luck is met by two pieces of good luck. And he's just never had that good luck. And now he has the good luck and he's he's questioning it. He thinks that it's just going to be like he's going to wake up and he's going to be dead. And I love that it goes back to all the different things in his life. <laughs> like, oh, well, maybe maybe 
um, he ate the breakfast and this is his brain telling him that like giving him a pleasant memory as he's dying or maybe um, maybe when he was being waterboarded, he's actually drowning. And this is his brain trying to, trying to take him uh, to a pleasant thought before he dies. Or maybe it goes all as far back as, uh, when he ran into the other guy and maybe he fell and hit his head in the same spot where he hit his head when the lightning struck him, uh, as a, like as a kid or whenever, and maybe he's in a coma or something, or maybe he's dead, which I thought that that was really fun. That was a fun little, like, uh, nod to the dead zone because that's basically what happens to Johnny Smith. Um, yeah, so I just, I, I like that. And then King ends the story with him climbing on the, on the top of the, of the playground equipment. And then, um, he just says like, uh, uh, I think Elvis has left the building or something. And then we're left with the thought of him jumping and we don't know if he is, you know, we don't know if he'll wake up dead or if he is in reality. And I just love that. I think that that's a fun, a fun way to kind of end this, this kind of fun story that has been grounded throughout the entirety of the story. It's grounded in reality. The only kind of um, piece of not reality (laughs) uh, is in the mind of Ludlum because it's kind of clear that he is deranged and he has uh, several issues with him that he's not operating in reality. There's nothing supernatural about this, but but that kind of... um, that kind of infectious way that that doubt is sown in Finn's mind um is really satisfying and 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 pleasant because it's just so I I don't know it's just it's really fun um to have this character question his reality after this out of this world crazy experience that is completely grounded in reality save for the people that's orchestrating it him uh, orchestrating it orchestrating it for him or at him um it being something that is just out of, like, out of, uh, that is, that is a product of deranged thinking. Um, so I kind of like the way that it kind of grafts on to Finn's mentality because he's questioning his reality now because he can't believe that he just had the good fortune of surviving this ordeal. Um, so yeah, so I think that that's a, it's a really fun story. It's, it's kind of cute. It's fun. It's energetic. It's thrilling. It has some tension in it. Again, it's not going to make my top 19 short stories or anything, but it's a fun, it's a fun story. Like King's King has still, King still has it. And, um, yeah. And I'm just really happy that, you know, he's still putting out this, this level of content, um, this late in his career. So yeah. So those are my thoughts on Finn. Let me know what you thought and everything. And now I'm going to throw it to, um, my thoughts, my previously only available on Patreon thoughts to, I know what you need from night shift. Again, if you want more exclusive Patreon content, including, um, about a total run of six hours worth of audio of me going through story by story, going through the night shift collection, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at $2 per month. You'll get access to that. My thoughts on Billy Summers as I was reading it, my thoughts, um, on the green mile piece by piece and my currently my thoughts on skeleton crew. As I go through it, I have two more, um, like big episodes to do for skeleton crew. And then 
I'll be done with that. So there's a ton of content on Patreon for you, for you guys at the $2 level. But if you want to also bump up, bump up to the $5 level, you get access to all of that. Plus, um, plenty of commentary tracks for Stephen King movies and non Stephen King movies. I did a lot of commentary tracks. Um, so, so yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. I do have a specific tag for Stephen King content, content on Patreon. So I'll put a link to that specific tag and then you can see all the Stephen King content there. And, um, and choose if you want to become a patron or not. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to throw it to I Know What You Need, which is a, uh, a review of that story from Night Shift that I recorded last year and threw on Patreon on G- in, in January of this year. So enjoy that. And then after that, I'm going to uh, throw it to my thoughts on uh, Skeleton Crew's The Raft. So enjoy. Okay, and next up in this cavalcade of King collected content um, conversation, um, I don't know what the fuck that was. Um, Okay, so next up, I'm going to be talking about I Know What You Need, and I Know What You Need is a short story in, obviously, Night Shift. Uh, that was originally published in September in the September 1976 issue of Cosmopolitan, and holy crap, guys, this this story is just incredible. I mean, it is it is phenomenal. Um, it obviously was first published in 1976, as I just said. And it's sad how much time does not how much things do not change with time. Um, so this story, reading it now in in the you know 2020s, um, after like the Me Too movement and with more kind of um, with more attention paid, rightfully so, to how people interact with each other, and most notably how the growth of the just ridiculous, stupid incel movement and um nice guyism uh has been has been given a platform with uh you know the internet being a way to collect people of um like-minded um attitudes um <laughs> and how like the whole red pill thing nice guys incels all that bullshit has created this this kind of this echo chamber of toxic masculine masculinity and misogyny and just this infinite feedback loop of negativity and cynicism and gross just abhorrent um hatred really and so reading i know what you need <laughs> with that stuff in mind this story is timeless it is incredible. It is the story of Elizabeth Rogan, a an attractive college student who is approached by a man of nondescript looks as King describes him, um named Ed Hamner, Ed Ed Jackson Hamner Jr. And he first tells her, I know what you need. And he seems to know everything that she needs and all of her needs and what she's thinking and everything. He has this eidetic memory supposedly so she he gives her um tips and a cheat sheet on the sociology test that she's that she's freaking out about and he seems to know exactly when 
she most needs to be comforted and exactly what she wants, uh, how she wants to be comforted and how she wants to be um, interacted with. And this story just is uh, stunning. It is absolutely stunning in the way that it delves into this very just messed up, twisted relationship that grows between them. And it's something that is so, so, um, I'm not going to say relatable, but it is so, um, truthful to, like I said, that whole red pill bullshit nonsense incel crap. And it is, it is just, it is horrifying in that respect. Like this is a horrifying story because it is about someone taking advantage of another person and creating creating a dependence upon them when that person is at their most vulnerable and most confused. There is a line that's repeated a couple of times in this story that it's uh, when her roommate is being um, is confronting her about her relationship with Ed. Um, her roommate Alice says, that's not love at all, that's rape. And it's it that line recurs a couple uh, pages later as well, um, and that's that's truthful. It is it is about consent. It's about this create like creating this like Ed Hamner is creating in in this interaction with with Elizabeth. He's creating, like I said, this kind of just uh, dependence upon him. And it is all manufactured. It is all nefarious. It is dangerous and everything. And as the story progresses, what I really love about it is the way that Elizabeth um, rationalizes it. And it's it's this interesting growth of like this, what, 20, 20, 30 page story? I think it's only 20 pages. Um, this 20 page story where she becomes dependent upon him and becomes like like at one point um in her model in her inner inner monologue um it says that she's already halfway through fall halfway toward falling in love with him and when you have that level of vulnerability um with a person it comes with obviously this trust and this level of commitment and the the breakneck pace pace of the relationship between Ed and Elizabeth creates in it this, um, this very much closed-minded, um, and and blinders effect on Elizabeth herself. Like when Alice is confronting her about it, she does not want to hear it. She does not want to hear how this plays out. She does not want to hear the truth about Ed because she thinks that she's in love with him. And like, there's even a part where Alice, her roommate, says, uh, "Love is blind, huh?" And it's just like. It's just so well written and intricate and truthful to human emotion in like vulnerable states, especially when you're dealing with, you know, young love, relatively speaking. I mean, these are characters who are in college, presumably, you know, early 20s, maybe very late teens, probably early 20s now that I'm thinking about it. But I mean, these are emotionally, emotionally compromised people. And to have a character take advantage of an emotionally compromised or a, you know, uh, just an emotionally uh, compromised person is abhorrent and evil and scary and terrifying. 
And the way that Ed Ham- Hamner is written throughout the story is incredibly effective as a villain character and scary, just scary character, because we know that there's something going on. We know that there's something behind it and everything, but the way that he is written, like the way it's, it's every time he appears in the text, it's really from Elizabeth's perspective because she's kind of the, uh, it's third person, but she is kind of the focal character. Um, and so we're seeing the story through her eyes, through a third person perspective. And this enables it to be this very, quick and um uh immersive story of this woman that is falling in love with this man and doesn't understand why she's falling in love with him and she doesn't quite understand how she is becoming so attached to this person and that is so interesting and so scary and in light of the me too movement and the incel bullshit and everything that is just so so that that's what makes it so timeless to me and so uh frightening because it is it is residing in this truthfulness this level of um this this level of um god what's the word i'm looking for like this level of for for Ed, it's like this level of uh, where he. Oh God, why can't I think of the word? Um, <laughs> I'm 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 freaking out here. Um, this level of oh my God, uh, entitlement, entitlement, entitlement. Okay, this level of entitlement that he has to her feelings because he believes that because he is giving her everything that she needs, she he's giving her everything that she could want before she even knows that she wants it. Like when he takes her to dinner and he all he orders her food and everything. Um, and when he says that she wants a strawberry double dip cone and then he comes back with it and everything, when she when that's in the like background of her mind, just in the in the very far back of it. This is a level of entitlement that he has. Like he feels like he is owed her affection and her attention because simply because he's attracted to her or simply because he has this fixation on her. I won't give away the end of the story or anything or the truth behind who he is and what he is and everything. But I will say that on the surface, him having this sense of entitlement and this idea that he uh, that she belongs to him is such a terrifying proposition and such a horrifying story in and of itself especially in light of like like the incel community how people seem to be uh this this kind of very gross misogyny of people wanting to take ownership of other people's emotions and feelings and not having their you know they're not letting them be their own individual person or letting them make their own choices just because they are attracted to this person or because they want to be with this person so therefore this person belongs to me and this it's something that's just so grotesque and horrific and to see it written out so so just naturally in a story that's written in 1978 is just such a bummer. <laughs> it's such a bummer that in terms of interpersonal uh, relationships and uh, like there's been a lot of growth over the decades, obviously. There's been a lot of growth in terms of um, 
in terms of relationships and 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 progressiveness and everything like all the stuff has happened but at its heart like we still have these outliers of just bullshit incel people and red pillars and stuff and just gross misogyny and everything where people think that they're entitled to the affections of other people simply because they're attracted to this person and it's just uh, it's just it's just dis- de- deplorable it's it's horrible um so and it, it's this idea of the loss of the individual like of okay if if someone wants to be in a relationship with someone that means that that someone needs to be you know absorbed into them and <laughs> needs to be someone who is uh at their beck and call and everything and it's beca- it's like the sense of ownership like it's sense it's the sense of being owed this by having the these special feelings toward another person um i'm rambling so much here <laughs> Um, I just got so much out of this story. I, I really am just so taken with it every time I read it. And what I find also very interesting about it is that it isn't something, it isn't a story that makes Elizabeth an out and out damsel. Like she is not a character who is completely at the whim and the will of this uh, horrible character and this horrible person who is taking away her individuality, her uh, decision-making ability, her choice in what she really wants and would would prefer to have and everything. He is he is emotionally uh, manipulating her in various ways and everything. And what I like about the story is that she is not. All, all told, she is not like a completely helpless character in that respect. There's, there's a scene where she has a nightmare. Um, this is shortly after she first encounters Ed, and she has this boyfriend who wants to marry her and everything. And she's like, after after meeting Ed and after some interesting uh, Ed encounters, she starts feeling like, okay, she doesn't want to marry Tony. She doesn't want to marry her her serious boyfriend or anything. She can only she can only think of Ed Hamner Jr. And so she has this dream where it's so vivid, it's so cool. God damn it, I love it when King just goes into this uh, uh, immaculate detail of of a setting of a of a uh, subconscious state. So. She has this dream where she is in a shallow grave and Tony is giving her an ultimatum saying like, okay, marry me or else. And then she's, she's paralyzed in, with fear and dread and everything. And she says no, or I think she doesn't say anything. I don't know. But then he comes back with a bulldozer and starts to bury her alive. And then we get this just completely hokey, like um, heroic moment in the dream from Ed Hamner just vanquishing Tony and everything. And the reason that I'm going into so much detail with this is that I love this for Elizabeth because when in the dream, when, when, um, Ed like picks her up out of the grave and everything, she, uh, like his hand transforms into this like timber wolf saber or something like that. And what I love about that is that is her subconscious. That is her brain signaling to her that, okay, this is not natural. This is not something that, uh, you need. Like, this is, this is something that is just off kilter. And you're not conscious of it because the power that he's wielding is so, um, so overbearing and everything. But this is, this is me, the brain signaling to you, the person, that this is not everything is above board with this man. <laughs> so, 
I just love that little bit. And then like as she is kind of coming to terms with it throughout the story, like later in the story, and as she's piecing together the different like anachronistic things that could not be true and that that are just blatant evidence of him manipulating her and orchestrating things in his favor. It's just it is this struggling this struggle between her like what she thinks she desires and what she is conscious of and what she is aware of and how this these all these pieces are coming together in a way that is just so horrifying in such a such a significant way and in that respect I'm again I'm not going to spoil the ending of this of this story or anything but I will say that I love how King does not put it into like it, it like the ending it goes into some it goes into some interesting places uh there's reference to the necronomicon which i thought was interesting i've never read lovecraft but i'm aware that you know the necronomicon is is his doing and i know that king is a huge lovecraft fan but um it goes into some some pretty deep mythological and and uh uh, some interesting magic stuff, I guess I, I'll say that much. But what I love about it is that the the kind of climax of the story isn't this big, bombastic violence thing or anything like that. It is a mental. It it is this. It is this. Um, this emotional kind of uh climax for Elizabeth as she is she's you know faced with the truth of Ed Hamner and confronting him and confronting what uh he's happened and she. I mean, I love that. I was so much more engaged with that than I would have been if it was this out and out like, oh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to vanquish this evil person by destroying them and killing them and everything. And it's not like this pulpy or, um, or gratuitous thing. It is solely resting in the emotional state of the story and the emotional importance of it. And I just respect it so much for that reason. <laughs> Um, because it just makes that central theme, the kind of idea of, of the completely immoral, the, the complete immorality and just abhorrence of creating a scenario in, in uh, cr cr orchestrating things to take away someone's individuality in favor of, um, creating a dependence upon you for them, uh, strictly because you are attracted to them or you want them to be a part of your life. Like that is just, it's, it's not love, it's rape. Like it, like the story says, and it's just to have it end in such a, uh, with, with such an emotional climax for the character is so fulfilling and, and just makes it an, an incredibly, um, a, a much stronger, uh, statement and a much stronger narrative to, to end it that way. So, Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I did not expect me to ramble so passionately about this story, but fah, I just, I love it so much. I, I really, really do. Um, so those are my thoughts on I Know What You Need. Um, it is one of my favorites of this whole collection. It is so, so good. Um, I don't think it's my absolute favorite of the collection because I think that that still is... Um, what was my favorite of the collection? <laughs> Sometimes they come back. Um, but I think it is a very close number two, um, to it. Yeah. It's, it's God, it's such a, it's such an amazing 22 page story from King and I love it so much. So those are my thoughts on, I know what you need. And now we're going to go on to my thoughts on the final 
story of this section of my five of this of this part of my five part uh night shift um uh episode series for patreon but this final one is a big one it is a doozy it is children of the corn so stay tuned for my thoughts on children of all right and now to round out this episode i'm going to throw it to my thoughts on the raft from skeleton crew which i recorded more recently um <laughs> uh for patreon again go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer become a patron at two dollars per month or five dollars per month or if you want to go big go ten dollars per month and uh and yeah again if you go to patreon.com and become a patron, you get charged immediately and you get instant access to all of the content under the tier that you uh, subscribe to. So, and you, and it's kind of a cascading effect. So you pledge, you do the $2 tier, you get access to all the $2 content and the $1 content, which is usually just us just kind of farting around and um, kind of just shooting the breeze and everything. If you do $5, you get access to $5, the $5 stuff, the $2 stuff, and the $1 stuff all in one go. Again, check the show notes. I have a tag specifically for Stephen King content. Uh, you can check that out, browse it and everything. But uh, yeah, so hope you guys consider checking that out. Um, yeah, and uh, and yeah, it's a recurring monthly payment, so you'll have access to it as long as you, uh, as long as... Um, the fees keep coming. <laughs> it's um, charges once once a month at the beginning of the month, um, just one flat rate, whatever tier you have. So $2, you get charged $2 on the first of the month, and then you have access to everything. So um, at that level and below. So uh, check that out. Once again, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And now I'm going to throw it to my previously Patreon exclusive review of the raft oh god my voice cracked so bad right there uh my previously patreon exclusive content recording review of the raft from skeleton crew again i'm working on doing uh the full run of skeleton crew uh story by story so there's plenty more content on patreon for you but for now enjoy this review of the raft Okay, and I am back with my thoughts on The Raft, which was first published as a booklet that was included with Gallery in uh, November of 1982. And then um, apparently it was expanded and uh, uh, revised um, into a short story that was then collected in Skeleton Crew. And of course, it is one of the segments of Creep Show 2, which Tiny and I covered in an episode of Tower Junkies. So, as an actual story, man, I really like this story. It is a very um, creepy and unsettling um, uh, monster story, kind of with, with echoes of Jaws and uh, like a little bit of the blob as well. But mostly like Jaws and mostly Jaws, really, <laughs> and the ambiguity of it. So, so the the summary of it, or the the basic plot of um, the raft, is that this group of four college students are it's uh, it's uh, October, so they go to this lake that has been kind of you know, shut down to, for public use since Labor Day. And they go to where this raft is. They swim out to the raft to just basically swim out and have some fun. But there is this 
oil slick looking thing in the water that becomes uh, a a harbinger for their doom. Um, It is a monster um, that we don't get any detail. We don't get any uh, we have no idea what it is exactly. And I love that bit of ambiguity because we don't need to have any, any details of it. Like this is an example of King telling a monster story that isn't, um, that isn't predicated on knowledge of what the monster is. Like it doesn't need to be, this is just a monster story with some teenagers at its center. And that's something that I really appreciate too, is that the teenagers, there are four of them. There's, uh, oh God, um, uh, there's four of them, Randy, Deke, Loretta, and Rachel. And what I really like about this is, is, is instead of bringing, instead of going into detail about the monster and what it is or where it's from, like the, the scant details we get about it are, I mean, pretty straightforward. Um, it's a monster that will, that if, if you make contact, uh, with the water near it, it will come after you. If you, if, if there are, um, yeah, it's basically that. And I just, I, I love that. But what we get instead of detail about it is we get, um, some, some detail about the characters and like, these are just basically, straightforward characters, uh, college characters. But what I love about it is that Stephen King writes it as this, it, it's not any big fluffy kind of backstory or, or anything. It's pretty standard, um, pretty standard work. But what he does is he brings us into particularly Randy's point of view where he is, he feels a little insecure and a little, um, and, and a little, uh, I guess out, um, outclassed? That's not the right word. He, he seems a little out of his element, a little unsure, a little insecure in relation to Deke, who is this kind of Lotharo, Lotharo? Is that the right word? I don't know. Um, this, uh, Lothario, I think is the word I'm looking for. But anyway, this, this kind of, um, man's man, kind of all state, um, football star who can get any woman he wants and everything. And he has this confidence that isn't, um, that is something that Randy struggles with because he's smaller. He doesn't have that level of confidence in him. And the way that that kind of informs the story is interesting because he has these little, these little like mental, um, bits where he's like, well, you know, um, like he, he's jealous really. Like when Deke starts to kind of move in on, uh, Lorraine or Loretta, um, and with when Randy had like a thing for her, it's just this sting of jealousy and guilt. And then he rationalizes it by saying like, well, if he, he was infatuated with her and he was, you know, attracted to her and everything, but if he was in love with her, he wouldn't have brought her anywhere near Deke because he wouldn't have, um, been able to compete or anything. And he knew how Deke was. And that's an kind of interesting kind of, uh, subconscious or interesting social commentary, I guess, to mine from that. It's not, like I said, this is not anything too deep or too detailed or anything. It's just this interesting example of Stephen King writing this 
kind of human human story of this monster that's attacking these humans and coloring it with some interesting detail about the insecurities of of the core group of characters that we get and i appreciate that it's something that it's an it's a great example of stephen king putting the story the story not necessarily on the back burner but making sure that there is enough detail to make the story um enough of a thrilling and and uh sympathetic kind of thing and when i say sympathetic i mean mostly the characters but also like there's some interesting elements to it that feel a little bit uh not not problematic it's nothing like that it's more the it kind of showcases the jealousy and the um insecurities of Randy in particular like when he wants to when he has the mental thought like he could he he could hit her he could punch her um because he was like angry at her um i think it's at loretta or lorraine whatever her name is um because he had a thing for her and he saw that um uh that oh my god deke was moving in on her and uh and just like that that kind of jealousy that kind of disappointment and insecurity kind of reaches a point where he's like well he could hit her because she's being annoying about something or she's she's not taking it seriously i don't remember the exact context but i thought that was kind of an interesting an interesting like part of the story where it just kind of takes this um takes this jealousy angle and puts it into a different context for for the story as a whole i just i don't i don't know i I appreciated that a little bit i thought that it was an interesting bit of coloration for the randy character that he's not just this lovelorn character he's this complicated and kind of a-holish character to an extent and then toward the end of the story i won't give it away or anything but um there's a moment with him and loretta or lorraine i want to say it's maybe lorraine i don't know i'm so sorry but um there's a moment with with uh him and her that is pretty interesting and and it makes sense in the context of the story it's kind of they're you know they're kind of stranded and they are it's this it's the classic like oh we are we're moments away from dying so uh, that adrenaline is making this kind of attraction kind of set in. And it's an interesting scene because the way it ends is is horrifying. Like it's it's really it's really cool. I, I really like the way that the story kind of progresses there. And I just found it to be an interesting close of the arc for Randy in particular, because he quote unquote got the girl, but it's it's just an interesting I, I don't know how exactly to uh quantify it or how to how to um how to explain it but there's this this arc that spreads throughout the story where Randy like I said is insecure and jealous of Deke um despite being you know like really good friends with him and everything and it, it's like this it's just tapping into this very interesting mental state that you know it's this kid who isn't hasn't reached the social standing or socially uh, social acclimation um of some of his peers and deke represents like this just giant personality and just very like cocksure um 
personality and uh, like this bravado. This he he has it all in in Randy's eyes, and I just really appreciate the way that the story kind of develops that and takes Randy into being while not exactly like a very good person per se, but takes him into being like a kind of a, a not hero arc, but he becomes like a protagonist. He becomes a, a survivor throughout the story. Like he is our central character. He is our, our protagonist that we see most of most, if not all of the, um, the story through his eyes. And I just really like that journey for that character from insecurity to, uh, kind of quote-unquote alpha. It reminds me a lot, and I think I've mentioned this either in, I definitely mentioned this in my Night Shift coverage, I think, or maybe earlier in this one, but um, I think it was Night Shift, but it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite movies, 28 Days Later, where that story, I, I really love the structure of that story as uh, Killian Murphy's character Jim is taken from just an outsider who is just thrown into this apocalypse, apocalyptic event, and then he slowly becomes like this alpha male save savior for, um, for his companions in the movie. And I really like that arc as well. And I always appreciate when I see that in other art. Not obviously, Twenty Days Later came out well after the raft, but I really like that type of character arc, that hero's journey arc for a character um where something is uh, a uh, a crazy scenario is thrust upon them and then they have to um adjust to that and become um someone much stronger than they were at the start it's a very standard storytelling device it's a very standard narrative structure but i really appreciate when it's done well and here in the raft i think it's done particularly well and um, there's a lot of good stuff in it. Now, as far as the actual horror aspect of it, like I said, this is an incredible, like, monster story. This is a very good and scary story. Um, it is very disturbing. Um, the detail of the, of the violence is very, I mean, standard King. It's very good stuff. It's very gross and grotesque. Um, and just, it's, and it also kind of, uh, informs the, the, uh, the characters a little bit also. And, and those arcs that I kind of referenced too, like when Deke, there, there's a moment with Deke where, um, I don't want to spoil it, but anyway, there's a moment with Deke that like the, the, let's see, what's the, uh, the, the perception or the perspective is focused on his like uh state ring from football like his his state championship ring and i just love that as this this kind of wink at the at the audience or wink at the reader saying like oh yeah this is a this is a top dog like very confident and athletic and um just like conventionally uh heroic I guess or, or maybe not heroic but like he's the conventional protagonist and we're focusing on this this football championship ring in a situation where he does not he is not like the the fighter that that the um story would have and what I really like also about this is that it is it is a fairly brief story it's it's longer than some in the collection longer than than several in the collection but also it's shorter than uh, some others, but, um, but what it is, what I do appreciate about it is that all of that 
insecurity, all of that slow build or um, uh, insecurity and jealousy and everything is internal. There's no real outward conflict among the among the characters. And I think that that's a really good way to tell this story because that puts the focus on the monster. It puts the focus on the horror of what's going on. And I'm glad that we didn't have like any big outburst of anger among the group or whatever, because it doesn't, it wouldn't as, as unrealistic and crazy as this story is, um, that would that would make it a little less that would make that would have made it too dramatic it would have made it too um it would have taken me out of the story to have like two characters be like oh well i like i'm mad at you because of this and while we're stranded on a raft while a monster is trying to kill us like it's just it just wouldn't have fit so i really appreciate the way that stephen king was able to introduce this interpersonal conflict but through the perspective of one central character and his insecurities his perspective of what's going on and his ego and jealousy and that's the that's the interpersonal conflict we have it's through one character and i just found that to be really good and really satisfying because like i said the rest of the story is this monster story that is crazy and graphic and terrifying. And I just really, I really appreciated it. As far as the adaptation in Creepshow 2, I can't really remember what all we said about it in the episode, but I, I liked it. I think that this is, I think that there is some, there. I think that it's appropriate to have this as a segment of an anthology movie. I don't know if it would really be able to sustain a full on, movie um but i i think that they did well enough with it um i would i would say that it would be interesting to see it readapted maybe in the creep show tv show i think that that would be pretty interesting um to see that done but yeah as it stands now this is a really good story and i also wonder if i i haven't seen the movie cabin fever in a very long time i didn't really care for cabin fever but um there's like one part in it that kind of reminds me of this. Um, just, I think that there was a scene where I think Ryder Strong is like on a boat or something or near like a dock or something, something like that. Um, and I wonder if that has any, if this story had any influence on, I think it was Eli Roth that made Cabin Fever. I might be wrong, but um, I don't know, maybe, but I might be grasping at straws. But anyway, those are my thoughts on The Raft. I really, really enjoy this story. I think that it's a lot of, uh, it's it's good monster fun. And the horror is very, it scratches a certain um itch for scary kind of violent um monster stuff so i really liked it and uh and yeah so yeah that's the raft and i'm gonna round out this episode or this segment of skeleton crew um uh reviews and everything with word processor of the gods so stay tuned. all right and that's it for this episode i just want to say thank you guys once again for listening and make sure you check out kim c's interview with tiny on her podcast the year of underrated stephen king absolutely phenomenal episode um it was a lot of it, like it was a lot of fun to listen to i wasn't involved with it but it was a lot of fun to listen to 
uh, them talk about King and everything. So check that out. Uh, the year of underrated Stephen King also rate and review her podcast. She's fantastic. And, um, she, she does a great job with the podcast. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and close us out here. Um, once again, I want to say thank you guys for supporting us and for, uh, Actually, let me go here. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for supporting us. And once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for more Patreon content um, on Patreon. So, so yeah. So, all right. I am going to head out. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll uh, see you in the next episode. Also, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.